0: Indeed, that was good singing times when we learn new songs and continually work on them it's a bit of a nervousness maybe in us to sing out but you've done wonderful in learning especially the new songs that teach good doctrine and uh, i appreciate that very much well i got myself in trouble at the beginning of the sermon or the message in the first hour jessica's giving me a look. Um, We are helping our neighbors keep their chickens. (laughs) I didn't agree to it. But uh, Jessica and Nate and Luke were excited about it. Drew and I are kind of come see, come saw when it comes to chickens. We like eating them. We like eggs. But we're not probably in the mode of raising them. This morning, um, well, that, it started on Friday night, we, or Friday night or Saturday night, one of the nights. Um, we went over to count the chicks, and there should be 13 hens and one rooster. And after we got them all into the coop, Jessica and I counted those dumb chickens four times. You know what chickens don't do when they go in their coop? They don't sit still. You <laughs> know, I had a theory like we should paint like all their claws or something with like a little color or something. So we were like, all right, there's Bluey. Bluey's in, Pinky's in. Green's in, but they're not our chickens, so we can't do that. Uh, So this morning, uh, Drew and I headed out for early service. It was about 745, and I came out of uh, our closet bathroom area, and Jessica comes out, and she's got her hood up and her sweatshirt, and she's like this, and she's like, I'm going to feed the chickens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's your fault, not mine. (laughs) Thankfully, we're done. Our neighbors, David and Susan, will be back this afternoon. No more chickens for us. But I did hear, honey, this is for you, uh, Mark Woods came up and said, hey, I don't have to do that. I don't have to let them out. I don't have to let them in. I got an automatic door, and it raises, and it lowers, and it's just perfect. He said, all I got to do is go out there and, uh, and just feed them. And that, that's real easy. And I was listening. I was soaking it up, and I was listening as best I could. And then Debbie says, Except for when it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) So, even the automatic doors are imprecise. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 5 for me this morning. Hebrews chapter number 5. And we're looking at our superior Savior this morning. We'll look at his superior nature in his priesthood. In his priesthood. So we'll read the first ten verses. Scott, i got a little bit of a ring up here just for your all's purposes. I think it might be these front monitors. So let's read the first ten verses here of Hebrews chapter 5, and then we'll jump into the message this morning. The Bible says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained from men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant, and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. By reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, that phrase there is his Father in heaven, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who, in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto them uh, unto him, excuse me, that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek Father help us this morning as we learn of our Savior Jesus Christ and in particular his role in his priesthood may that priesthood impact us there's certainly a lot of truth Lord that is given to us in the final four verses of this chapter that we will come to But we cannot understand those final four verses until we understand these first 10. Help us to see and know our Savior this morning. Bless us that we would be practical in our application of the word of God. May all that is said and done in this place and this hour glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. In our study of Hebrews, we are now moving into chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. That will focus our attention on Christ's high priestly role for the believer. It is the chief message of Hebrews, and the writer in this will draw a s- distinction between the shadow that was Aaron's priesthood and the sunshine of Christ's personhood. As the high priest of God for mankind, Jesus Christ is far superior to anything that Adam could be, or that Aaron could be. The high priest was a supreme religious leader of the Israelites. He had to be whole physically. That means without physical defects or any sinful behavior. And holy in his conduct. Notice what the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 21. Most of us don't understand the Levitical priesthood. But here is the description of what his life had to be like. Here is the sign up, if you will. Here's the dotted line that you have to agree to if you wanted to be a high priest. Here's what it says. Now they shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God. For the offerings of the Lord made by fire, the bread of their God they do offer. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane. Neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband. For he is holy unto his God. The he here is the high priest himself. Thou shalt shalt sanctify him, therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee, for I, the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy. In other words, this role of the high priest was one of high distinction, high merit, high conduct, and high character. It is not something that you just casually walk into. The writer of Hebrews introduces to us Christ, our superior high priest. In Hebrews chapter number 5. He begins by explaining the role of the earthly high priest in verses 1-4. through In your notes, that's point number 1. Jesus Christ fulfills the earthly high priest. The position of high priest was significant. Because this man was very special, as we just read. Even if the man himself was not. Now it's interesting. A lot of the high priests in Israel weren't necessarily stellar individuals. They weren't really godly folk. It wasn't the man that was holy. It was the calling that was holy. It was the position that the person was being placed into. Aaron himself was not a great fellow if you study him. That doesn't mean Aaron himself didn't do great things for God. And that God did not call him to that position. Look, in the book of Exodus, it was Aaron who led them in false worship with the golden calf. It was Aaron's two boys in the book of Numbers who reached out and offered strange fire upon the altar of God, and immediately they were struck down. It was Aaron with Miriam again in the book of Numbers, and we find complaining about the authority and leadership of (coughs) Moses. Aaron was not a special individual, but Aaron's calling most definitely was special. the position that God was establishing in Leviticus chapter 16, and again in chapter 21 as we read, was a position that would foreshadow what Christ would accomplish. Here we find our great high priest in Hebrews chapter number 5. No man, we read in verse 4, could appoint himself as a high priest. You couldn't sashay into the tabernacle one day and say, hey everybody, I think I need to be the high priest this week, why don't you let me take that job? You couldn't do it. It wasn't your calling. It was a lineage calling. It was after the order of Aaron. It was after the lineage and line of Aaron. In fact, we read of some people in the Old Testament that tried to usurp the position of the high priest. It did not go well for the sons of Korah. If you know anything about the sons of Korah. They tried to take Moses and Aaron's position and did not think them special in their calling. And God said they are, and he separated and eliminated Korah and those families that followed him. King Uzziah did the same thing in the Old Testament. And in the process of trying to make himself as king, the high priest, God struck him with leprosy. And it wasn't until he begged God that God relented of the leprosy when he learned his lesson. I think the best of all is King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter number 13, the Philistines are ready to attack. and. Samuel the prophet has not come down to Gilgal where they were worshiping and offering to the Lord or where that would take place. And King Saul is kind of waiting, impatient as he usually was, and his temperament not good. He is in the process of trying to prepare the burnt offerings himself, and he does. And here's what he says at the end of verse 12 in 1 Samuel 13. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. That's a lie. You didn't like to wait on God's timing and God's man, and so you decided to do it yourself. And ultimately that, along with his disobedience, caused Saul the kingdom. Here in our text, in Hebrews 5, the writer explains the earthly high priest, and he begins with the function of the high priest. Now, has anybody in here ever been a high priest? Of the teenage guys are like, oh, I'll raise my hand up see what he does. Right? Of course, none of us Has anybody in here ever gone to a Jewish temple and seen what a priest or have they ever worked or studied or seen a video of what a high priest does even today? And the answer is most of us don't because we're Gentiles, right? We don't have a reason to know those things. So let's take a second and understand what he's talking about in verse 1 where it says that he was ordained for men and things pertaining to God that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. The high priest would offer gifts or offerings, burnt offerings they're called, from the people and sacrifices for the people. A person could offer a gift, a burnt offering, at any time that he chose. It was a sacrifice of general atonement, it's called. It was an acknowledgment of the sin nature that resided within him and a request for a renewed relationship with God. They would take an offering that would be wholly burnt unto the Lord. The idea of a burnt offering, burnt in the Old Testament, means an ascending offering. Literally, its smell, its aroma would rise to God and God would recognize this person that brought this offering is repentant of his sins or her sins. God also had set times for the priest to give a burnt offering for the benefit of Israelite, the Israelites as a whole. Although the animals required for each sacrifice might have varied, there were certain times when they had to require, er, offer a burnt offering. Every morning and evening, according to Exodus 29, each Sabbath, according to Numbers 28, the beginning of each month, again in Numbers 28, in Numbers 28 again at the Passover, with the new grain and first fruit offerings at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of the Trumpets in Rosh Hashanah, at the New Moon in Numbers chapter 29. It was the high priest's responsibility to offer on behalf of those repentant sinners before the Lord. His calling was to exactly follow the pattern that God had established to bring forth or realize atonement for those who were bringing their offering. That was the function of the high priest. The word sacrifice in verse number one, or sacrifices, refers to the Day of Atonement. Do you know we just celebrated the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur? Sunset October 4th to sunset October 5th was the high and holy day on the Jewish calendar. What happened this last week then on those days? What did the high priest do? And My better question is, where did he go? There is no temple on the Temple Mount. But in Aaron's day, this is what they were required to do. On that day of atonement, that high and holy day, the high priest was to perform elaborate rituals to atone for the sins of the people whole, all of them. It is described very clearly in 30 verses in Leviticus chapter 16. We'll not take time to read all through that, but you might note that this morning. Put Leviticus 16, that is worthy of your read. It's a hard read. Nobody's going to sit down and read and go, huh. I'm glad I read that. But when you finish reading, you'll be glad that you don't have to do that anymore. In Leviticus 16, we find described the atonement ritual began with the high priest of Israel coming into the Holy of Holies. The solemnity of the day or the solemn nature of the day was underscored by God telling Moses to warn Aaron not to come into the most holy place, whenever he felt like. it. He did just not just walk into God's presence and say, here I am, God. Pay attention to me, God. Hey, look how important I am, God. By the way, there's a great lesson for New Testament Christians in that as well. We are important. Yes, Christ died for our sins. But we're not more important than his standards, his holiness, and his regulations, we might say. Or those things that regulate who he is. In verse number 2 of Leviticus 16, Aaron is warned by Moses, if you go in beside the special day of year. And if you go in on that special day, unprepared, you will die. This was not a ceremony to be taken lightly. Then, Before entering the tabernacle, Aaron was to bathe, put on special garments, according to verse 4. Then he had to sacrifice a bull for the sin offering for himself and his family in verses 6 and 11. The blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Then Aaron was to bring two goats 1 to be sacrificed, according to verse 16, because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins might be, this goat would pay, according to verse 16. And its blood was sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat was used as a scapegoat. Aaron would place his hand upon its head... Confess over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites. And that scapegoat was sent out with an appointed man who would release it in the wilderness, according to verse 21. The goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, for it was their scapegoat. That is Jesus Christ, by the way. Their sins were atoned for for another year, not for the rest of their life. I've often wondered when we think of this function of the high priest, what was it like at that tabernacle? Not just on that day of atonement, but through the days where offerings of burnt offerings were brought and they were prepared and they were placed and they were burned. What was it like? I have a couple pastor friends that we've talked about this before and said, I think I'd just like to be there. I'd like to see it. I'd like to take it all in. I think it'd be quite disgusting. Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of families who knew that they had taken themselves in sin and they were bringing sacrifices to be burned not just on the day of atonement but during the process of the year of the burnt offering it would be constant blood constant gore constant smell of rotting flesh in those places that is what your sin smells like that is the price of kind of hard for us to then say well sin's not that big a deal well, if you smell the tabernacle you probably get a sense of how bad it smelled. right the function of the earthly priest is given to us in verse one and that brings us or opens the door to the forgiveness that is from the high priest now i'm not saying here the priest could forgive their sins but the priest could help them follow the pattern that would bring atonement for the next year for their sin. It was the high priest who was the one that would school them and instruct them. That would lead them to the truth of what they were doing and why they were doing them. In verse 2, the Bible says, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? The high priest was compassionate on the ignorant, we find. There was no forgiveness in the Old Testament for willful sins. That's the amazing part about the story of the life of David. King David willfully had a adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He willfully murdered Uriah, and yet it was only by God's grace that his life was not required. That's the only reason. There wasn't like an offering, like I'm going to take 17 heifers and bring them down to the high priest and I'll get out of this one. Woo! Can't pay for your sins if you willfully engage in them. Israel, we understand, are sheep. That is why the writer says he was compassionate upon the ignorant and those that were out of the way. They had all gone out of the way, the book of Isaiah tells us. It was the chief shepherd who would love and die for his sheep. The high priest was to compassionately love God's people back into a place of obedience and blessing through the sacrificial offerings that are here. To bring or provide the avenue of forgiveness. The high priest was was also we find in verse 2 compassed with infirmity everywhere the high priest looked there was blood there was sacrifice there was rebellious people and there were offerings being made for them you think your job is depressing imagine that guy's job constantly seeing and hearing of all of the sins that had been committed find that it wasn't just that that it compassed him this infirmity the word infirmity means weakness or inability weakness was all around him yes but weakness was also within him that leads us to let her see the frailty in the high priest in verse three and by reason hereof by what reason and hereof what By the reason of his infirmity hereof, he had to offer sins, not just for the people, he says in verse 3, but for himself also. He had to offer for himself. We read in Leviticus 16, or at least we alluded to, and you can read, that they had to offer the bull for themselves first so that he could be right, so that he could make sure they were right. There's frailty in these fallen high priests, these earthly high priests. This man, after all, was just a man. Judaism failed because, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw this conclusion in their mind because they had elevated the high priest in the order of Aaron. That man was nothing more than a sinner in a line of sinners just like them. He just had a calling and a position given to him by God. This is one of the most compelling realities of being a pastor. I am not perfect. Some of you just, yeah we know. I'm not. I cannot, therefore, be your confessor. I cannot be your forgiver. Only Christ can, for only he lives sinlessly so that he might die perfectly and holy for both your sins and mine. There's an interesting study of high priests in the Old Testament. Samuel and Eli. Now, when I say Samuel, some of you cringe and say he was a wonderful priest, prophet, and judge. Well, we'll talk about him in just a second. But Eli is the obvious one, Right? In 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4, we are introduced to Eli, who is the priest and the prophet and one of the last judges of Israel. Hannah brings Samuel to him, and in the process of reading of Samuel's beginning, we read of Eli's end. And he had two sons that he had raised. It seems that he was very happy to be the high priest, but he wasn't very good at being a holy parent. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Anybody named their kids Hophni or Phinehas recently? You had know, all the kids in here are like, "Man, I'm glad my parents didn't choose that name for me." Now, somebody might know a Phinehas. If I've offended him, please let me know. But neither one of these guys were good guys. They robbed from the tabernacle treasury. They blackmailed the, blackmailed the people, and they disregarded God and their father's instruction. It seems that Eli did not care. It wasn't until he was told that they had died in battle that he himself, fat, old, died by falling off of a bench and breaking his neck, the Bible says. And I only tell the stories like that because I want the young people to go, oh, the Bible actually might have cool stories in it. It's got great stories, sometimes gory stories. But they're all Godly stories because they teach us the truth. Eli was a terrible father, and it cost him. And yet he was a high priest. Samuel followed in his footsteps. He grew up in the midst of that. He raised two sons of his own. And while he lived, we read that he was a good high priest and a faithful prophet and a good judge in Israel. But the same thing ultimately happened to his his two kids. My point in saying that is earthly high priests were frail because they were fallen sinners by nature and by choice. They were compassed with infirmity, and by reason hereof, he, or they, ought for themselves to offer for sins. Only Christ lives sinlessly, and only he accomplished perfectly what the earthly high priest hoped to do. So Christ is superior to the mere earthly high priest, for he is number two, the eternal high priest. And again, I realize this week and next week, these are some technical messages. But don't get lost in the fact that when well, we don't have a high priest, it's not important. Oh, there's going to be a huge importance to this, tr- this truth when we get to verse number 11 in just a few moments. So let's establish that a distinction between Jesus and the high priest of the earthly order of Aaron. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Jesus therefore could not be a high priest in Israel. By the way, It is why, it is why when you read the life of Jesus through the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin always attack him. They knew he was a good teacher. They knew he was a good rabbi. But you know what he couldn't be? In their mind. A high priest. Sometimes we beat But understand, it was their own religion that was getting in their way of truly trusting in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because they kept saying, you are not in the line of Aaron. You're not from the right tribe. You're not a Levite. You're a Judah. You're from the tribe of Judah. And you and I sitting here today say, well, why is that important? To the readers of Hebrews, it was immensely important. This guy's a liar, they said. He can't be who he says he is. But he was. We understand in this eternal high priesthood, then, that the writer of Hebrews is not without weapons. By the way, I used to teach the kids that I would coach and debate, if you're going to make a reasoned argument, you better have a reason for your argument. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews does in these verses, beginning in verse number five. The writer corners the Jewish reader... When he writes verse number six, as he saith in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of who? Yeah, right. You can't say his name either. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek is how you say his name. We can say this just in the beginning here as we understand his eternal high priesthood nature. Christ in his work fulfilled the priestly nature of Aaron. Christ in his way, meaning his manner and his character, who he was in his nature, fulfills the priesthood of Melchizedek. So we find the eternal high priest starts with the ordination of Christ in verses 5 and 6. So also, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. In other words, when Jesus was on on this earth, he did not run around to everyone and say, hey, I'm a high priest, everybody. He didn't say that. He just would ask people, who do you say I am? He would tell people that were earnestly seeking him that he was the son of God, that he was the son of man, that he was the Messiah come, and that they should put their faith in him. But he would not run around saying that he was the high priest. So the writer says, look, he did not go around glorifying himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, that is, God the Father said unto him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That's a passage from Psalm 2 and verse 7. As he said in another place, or in another Old Testament passage, the writer is here saying, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The phrase, the order of, or order of, means the lineage of. So when we're talking about the ordination of Christ, we're talking about that which he's called to. Look, we are getting ready to have, in the next couple months, an ordination council. Now that sounds important, doesn't huh? it? I mean, you kind of want to put on your nice Sunday vest to come out of ordination Zach right now, once a week, is going through and settling what he already knows and codifying into his own core beliefs. And he's in the process of confirming God's call on his life to fulfill the role of a pastor. And so when he's done with that, we as a church will come together and not call him to be a pastor. For it's God that calls a pastor, just like it was that God called a high priest. We will just sit as a church and confirm what he knows. But it's the, it's the same ordination process. He proves who he is and what he knows. The same thing it is here for Jesus Christ. He proves who he is and what he knows. The ordination of Christ is in the line or order, not of Aaron, an earthly high priest, but of Melchizedek. Christ was not a physical descendant of Melchizedek. I'm going to give you my opinion. If you come back for Hebrews chapter 7, you can hear a larger, not defense of this, but a definition of this. I believe that Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a Christophany. Now, don't leave because of Bible heresy in the church. Just understand there's no proof one way or the other. There's people that believe it was just a random priest who was there in a city called Salem, which is peace, whose name happened to be the king. My king is righteous. Uh, It just so happens that we would say that some would say he was a priest after his own individual order, and we can talk about that. And I believe that it is a Christophany. It was a representation or a personification of Jesus Christ in the flesh before he came in Mary's womb. And that is a possibility in the word of God. It has happened. We can read of it in Joshua chapter number five. Simply to say this morning, if Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, he cannot be in the order of Aaron. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is drawing a clear distinction of that which is earthly and that which is eternal. If you go to Genesis chapter 14 and study Melchizedek, you will find that after Abram goes and rescues Lot and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and others, and is coming back to where his habitation is, he comes across the path of this man named Melchizedek. He is both a priest and a king of a city called Peace or Salem. And in the process of that, Melchizedek offers to Abram what? Bread and wine. And in offering bread and wine to him, by the way, both of those types are pictures of Jesus Christ, bread and wine, we find that Abram offers worship to Melchizedek, and we do not find that Melchizedek refuses it. Every time you find in the New Testament or the Old Testament, when someone tries to worship an angelic being, they say, oh, no, 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 no. And it would be wrong for him to truly be an eternal high priest if, as a man, he received worship unto himself. You say, Pastor, you feel like you're defending yourself. No, I'm just trying to drive home a point here. The writer of Hebrews was very emphatic. Jesus Christ has a higher order than just what you Jews are trying to say of the high priestly order of Aaron. There's a much greater order out there, and that is the divine order of God Almighty. That's what puts. The point that he's trying to drive home. Here's what the psalmist said, by the way. Psalm 110 is a wonderful psalm, and it is a psalm about Christ. Verse 1, we don't have it on the board, but verse 1 of Psalm 110 simply starts by saying this. Thou, Lord, hast said unto my Lord. In other words, God's talking to God here, and David's recording the conversation. Well, this is the fourth verse in that conversation. It says, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. In other words, God will never change his mind about what follows this statement. Well, what follows the statement? Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's he talking about? Christ. David recognized the lineage of Melchizedek and linked Christ in Psalm 110 to his very person. Christ was ordained a high priest by God. Not after Aaron, but after Melchizedek, the writer is telling us. We'll explore him more in Hebrews 7. And you say, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay, I won't tell you what week we're preaching on that. The point is, for now, simply understand that just as Aaron had been chosen as a priest by God, having done nothing in his own merit, Aaron was selected of the tribe of Levi to be the high priest. Not Moses, but Aaron. And in selecting him, God chose to select Melchizedek as a priest and Christ. Christ was chosen by God to be a priest. Since he is the son of God, he has every right to fill that office and is called to that office by God for that very reason. Just as was the mysterious Melchizedek 500 years before Aaron and 2,000 years before Christ and 4,000 years from before we were talking about it this morning. Here's the point. There is a priesthood, the writer is telling us, That is far better, that is far superior, that exceeds the priesthood of Aaron, and that was in existence centuries before Aaron was ever born. The priesthood of Melchizedek, God set forward as a significant office, an eternal office. The reason the writer uses it here is because it erases 1,500 years of Jewish tradition, and it eliminated all of their hubris. It's kind of hard to brag about Aaron when God has just said, proved in Genesis 14, set by King David, their beloved psalmist in Psalm 110, and the writer of Hebrews here confirms, there is nothing special about the priesthood of Aaron except for it served its purpose. There is something special about this priesthood of Melchizedek, however. And it too will serve its purpose. There was the earthly high priest, and there is an eternal high priest. Here's what John Phillips says, by the way. I love him. John Phillips in his commentary. He always has a concise way to say things that are very powerful. He says, with two mentions of the name Melchizedek within a few sentences in our Bible, the intelligent Hebrew reader would begin to pace the floor with a thousand tumultuous thoughts racing through his mind. Eric Melchizedek, a ritualistic priest, a royal priest, a priest installed by the law of before Moses was ever born. Friend, this Christ and the order of Melchizedek is far superior to the order of Aaron. The ordination of Jesus was positionally greater than anything a priest after the order of Aaron could ever hope for. And thus, he couches then verses 7 and 8 within this ordination. The ordination of Christ opens the door to the obedience of Christ in verses 7 and 8. After telling us what he was called to in eternal high priesthood, he tells us how he got there. Though he was a son, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ was not shielded from suffering. Indeed, since he was truly God as well as truly man, no doubt his sufferings were magnified in his mind. Think of it this way. If there is some dreaded disease out there that you know you do not want to have, but you don't know all the ramifications of it, if you were a doctor and a specialist doctor in that field and you were diagnosed with that dreaded disease, would you consider it a more terrifying thought knowing all that you're about to go through? And the answer is most definitely. If I were a doctor and I were diagnosed with something that I knew was a terrible thing to endure, something that would ravage my body, that would ruin my body, that would would absolutely leave me hopeless and helpless, if I knew I was diagnosed with that disease, it would magnify the suffering in my own mind. Because I would know what's next. And next. And next. He is God. He understands what the full, full and total cost of redemption is. And the Bible tells us in verse number 7 that that process, that thought was weighed upon our Savior's mind as he was walking to Calvary. Here's what it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, that is Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, to his Father in heaven he's prayed. Notice it says, and was heard in, that he heard, in that he reverenced and respected God the Father's position. As a high priest, he understood he could not kick down the door to the Holy of Holies and do it his own way. He still had to be obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by things which he Just as the doctor's sufferings are intensified because he knows full well the ravages and the progress of certain diseases, so too was Christ's anguish magnified, knowing why he was enduring what he would be enduring. The phrase, learned he obedience, is an experiential knowledge. God, in his eternality and in his omniscience, two attributes that we as mortals do not share, had never experienced suffering. Now, some of you might go, Aha, I gotcha. I've been waiting all morning for this. I gotcha. God suffered when Adam sinned. I would submit to you, he never did. He grieved, and you say, Well, that's a form of suffering. No, he didn't suffer, he didn't learn that. He knew that was coming, and when it happened, by the way, he had already experienced loss in that when Satan, Lucifer, decided to leave heaven. So this grieving is not suffering. He had to learn suffering. He had to learn what it meant to die. For God had never been separated from himself. These are deep thoughts. By the way, I'm still building to verse 11. Some of you, every time I say that, look down and read verse 11. Do you know what I'm trying to drive home here? These are deep thoughts. These are things that are hard to be uttered. Yet we must understand them so that we can live holy. It was Jesus Christ who would learn obedience by experiencing suffering. What that prayer was like in Gethsemane is beyond our human understanding. we're told in the gospel accounts of that prayer that it was very taxing to our savior the weight of that prayer was upon him the weariness of that prayer was upon him the want can be found in that prayer jesus as flesh did not want to die but as god he understood he must be obedient right jesus knew death was coming it was something that god had never known death is separation from life god himself is life what jesus knew is that i'm going to be separated from god how long was that separation pastor how long did it need to be if it was infinitesimal if it was a nanosecond if it was a brief moment in time it would feel like to an infinite and eternal god who has never been and never will be separated from himself again For that short, brief period, it would feel like an eternity. That's the weight that he was carrying. Mm -hmm. It's no different than you and I can be separated from our consciousness, from our body. That's what we call death. Christ was going to be separated from God for us. He learned obedience. When the Lord Jesus came to the time of his death, he prayed to be delivered. Jesus was not asking to avoid death, for he knew the purpose in that death. Rather, he was praying to be saved out from underneath death. His prayer was answered in his resurrection. That Christ was perfectly obedient is essential, friends, to our salvation and to his high priestly role. Had he not been obedient, he could not be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Aaron, nor any other her earthly high priest, could die for mankind's sin, for they themselves were sinners. Jesus Christ, who is God, had to die. We see verses 9 and 10, the offering by Christ. The ordination of Christ, he was called to it. The obedience of Christ, he was committed to it. The offering of Christ, he was compassionate in it. Verse number nine, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all uh, salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When you read the phrase being made perfect, you can read that as a personal offering of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, if you were to look back there in verse 10, says this. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering, his own suffering. The apostle Paul t- said to the, Cor- uh, to the Corinthians this in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This was a personal offering of Jesus Christ. Let me help you with this phrase, being made perfect. My favorite holiday is coming up. It's not Halloween. And it's certainly not Christmas. I did read an article the other day that somebody in Texas was arrested because they broke into their neighbor's house and took down their Christmas tree because they put it up on September 28th. I felt like I should pay that guy to bail. <laughs> right? That's a little too early. It's not Christmas. I, I love Christmas. I love Christ, and He came, and all, all of those are true. And big. But my favorite holiday, if you've been around this church for any length of time, is what holiday? Thanksgiving. Oh, man. Three days of unmitigated eating. Football. Football. Nobody. I mean, listen. If you call me on those three days, you'll probably get a trip tryptophan cow, which is like, "Hey, man, how you doing?" Do you have turkey? I got some turkey, yeah. This phrase comes into focus on Thanksgiving. You say what? I mean, it is a crass analogy, but let me make it so you understand. We put it in the terms that we understand. If you put your turkey in a deep fryer, or you put your turkey in a smoker, or you put your turkey in an oven, or however else you want to put your turkey into whatever, there is a point where Tom comes to being done. And that would be the phrase, being made perfect. Tom started with all of his guts in him, and he had to pull them all out and get it prepared and get everything ready and juiced up and flavored up and oiled up and put in. And when the time is right, Tom has been made perfect. That's the same idea here. By the way, it was very personal for Tom. It's very personal for the Lord Jesus Christ. What it's saying here is throughout his life, ultimately his death, burial, resurrection, and then the days until his ascension. All of those perfections make him able to be our eternal high priest. He can stand in heaven because of what he offered while he was on this earth. The rest of that verse goes on to say this. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. It is not just a personal offering. It is a permanent offering. His choice to offer himself leads to our choice to receive him as our Savior. Jesus is not—now listen carefully when I say this— is not the blanket author of salvation for the race of mankind. And what I mean by that is Jesus Christ did not die for for sins— ...buried and rose again... ...and all of mankind just freely goes to heaven. That's what I mean by a blanket author of salvation. But he is certainly the author of salvation. That's why the conditional phrase is put in there... ...at the end of verse 9. Unto all them that obey him... ...or unto all them that choose to follow him. The author is effective for all mankind... ...we could say theologically... But it is conditioned on the whosoever will may come. It's the great statement from Harry Ironside, in one of his books I read years ago. Great old preacher. He said, How do we handle this idea of sovereign grace and free will? And Ironside said, On the front side of the gates of heaven, it will say, known from or, or uh, whosoever will may come. And Ironside said, But when you walk through the gate and look back, Known from the foundation of the world. I thought that's a good way to look at how this salvation works. Anybody can be saved. Everybody ought to be saved. But not everyone is. But it's only because of their own choice. Their own choosing. It is a permanent offering. Salvation can be an act of our will because it was first an act of God's will. If they had not made a plan of redemption, according to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, before the foundations of the world, you and I could not be redeemed. We would just be lost, and it would have ended in the garden with Adam's faithful choice. By the way, when God wills something, that is permanent. Its permanency is tied to his character, to his person. Thus, Christ is the author of eternal salvation. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So we might be asking then in the final moments of the message this morning, what am I supposed to do with this information? Is this just all academic? Was this one of those nerdy messages? And if you're smart, you have look down at your notes and you realize there's a point three. And I will be quick because the writer here is very direct. The answer to those questions is Christ's earthly and eternal priesthood produce in us the expectation in our own priesthood. Verse 11, of whom, it's not of Melchizedek, it's of Jesus Christ, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing, for when... For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles or the basic tenets of our faith, oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The high priest held the leadership position overseeing the responsibilities of all the subordinate priests. Jehoshaphat, when reestablishing order and worship in Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah, said this in 2 Chronicles 19 and verse 11. Behold, Amariah, the chief priest, that's the high priest, is over you all, over you, excuse me, in all matters of the Lord. That function is still Christ's function as our high priest today. As the high priest expected the Levitical priest to perform their duties, Christ, our high priest, expects us to do the same, to do what we know we ought to do. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 very quickly this morning. Peter is writing of the very same thing that we find here in Hebrews chapter 5. Peter says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. He's talking to young, immature Christians and telling them what his desire for them is. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That's the ordination of Christ that we've already talked about from Hebrews chapter 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. And what does it say? Holy priesthood. This is what we call the individual priesthood of the believer. You are a priest under subordinate to the high priest, Jesus Christ. Both earthly and eternal in his fulfillment, you are subordinate to him. And what he's saying is, if you've tasted of his graciousness, in verse number 3... You yourself are a live stone, or a lively stone. You are built up as a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in sign, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which would be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. These, This is the audience. These, this is written directly to Jewish Christians. The same audience that Hebrews is written to. Verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation. Notice what he calls us. A royal priesthood. You're a Melchizedek. He was a king and a priest. I know, I'm getting myself deeper into trouble for those that disagree. I'm simply saying, there is great truth in knowing he is our eternal high priest. And holy nation a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his, what? Marvelously. The writer of Hebrews lets the reader of Hebrews know that our great high priest has three expectations. In verses 11 and 12, it is to digest the truth. That's what God wants you to do. There's a lifetime of information to digest about Jesus Christ, believe me. Some of the stuff you digest and learn that you consume by reading the word of God is difficult for the finite mind to fully comprehend. But it is even harder for the mind of one who's steeped in religion or their own faith in themselves and good works. Can I tell you a secret? The longer I have known the Lord and the closer I have drawn to the Lord, the deeper I've gone in my relationship with him, the less I understand about him. Some of you are like, well, I'm getting up and leaving now. Pastor, just said he's an idiot. That's not what I'm saying. The deeper you go into a walk with God, the more you want to know Him, the more you realize He's vastly unknowable. You just have to trust the things that He's made known to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look, grow up. Take the food that you're given, not just on Sunday morning. Man, if you're living just off Sunday morning, you are starving. You are eating pablum. You are eating the worms that the mama bird has chewed up and spit into your mouth. Stop eating the baby food and start growing up into real meat. By the way, sometimes life circumstances take us through difficulties where we have to grow up quick. Jessica and I always are amazed at how people's faith grows Through some of the most difficult of circumstances. The word dull here, by the way, used in verse number 11, back in Hebrews chapter 5. The word dull that is used is the word slothful, sluggish, or lazy. It is not like they are incapable of understanding. It's just that they choose not to. I don't want to know. There's much to learn about Christ, but most believers never learn it. Can I tell you a secret? I think heaven is going to be a strange place for many of an immature believer. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book. I don't agree with all the doctrine in it, but he wrote a great book called The Great Divorce. And it's about a man getting on a bus and leaving earth and going to heaven. In his great literary form, he writes it. And when he gets to heaven, everything there is weird to him. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, we have been given how we ought to be living according to the word of God as individual priests, and we don't do it. And when we get to heaven, we will all do it in perfection, and it will be a very strange place to a great number of Christians. You will say, why didn't I do that on earth? Right? And God will say, I know. Why didn't you? The majority, I believe, of the tears that will be shed in heaven will be due to the half-hearted lives that we live right now on this earth as Priests. If we are fully engaged in our priestly duties, then we will be expected, we are expected to digest truth every day so that we might grow and mature. That's the point of verses 11 and 12. Verses 13 and 14, the next expectation is to discipline ourselves. He uses the word unskillful and then he uses the word exercise. <laughs> now a bunch of these teenage guys are sitting up here on the front row a couple Tuesday nights ago. I was dumb enough to go out and try to play basketball with them. I cannot tell you how grateful I was that there was a Hispanic group that came in to play volleyball on half of it, and I thought, oh, praise the Lord, I don't have to run the full court anymore. (laughs) Right? My 46-year-old legs can't keep up with their 16-year-old legs. I don't exercise them anymore. Most of my day is spent like this. That's interesting. What else can I help you with? (laughs) (laughs) You say, Pastor, if you're thinking, no, I'm just saying, that's how most of my day is spent. It's not spent running up and down or doing things or having the freedom to do those things. My life is a little bit more regimented. What he's saying here is you don't know how to use the word of God because you've never taken the word of God and tried to use the word of God. You're unskillful in it. There's an inexperience that is there. The third and final one, letter C is to discern right. What is expected of me as a subordinate priest to Christ? The answer is that I would digest his truth and make it part of my being. That I would discipline myself so that I can use what he gives me for my good and the good of others. And the third is to be able to discern between what is right and what is wrong. God wants you to discern between evil and good. If you are a priest, you must be able to discern right from wrong. The biggest problem for the Old Testament was when somebody would come to the tabernacle and that person would come up and the priest or the high priest did not know what to do for them. And you showed up to that priest of the tribe of Levite and he took you to the high priest and none of them knew what to do for you. And yet today in our modern sense of the New Testament, you as individual priests out in the world do not even know sometimes how to discern between right and wrong. Why? Because you haven't digested the truth properly. You haven't disciplined yourself to it properly. And therefore it is very difficult to discern. Is this good? Or is that? answer that question, but you're robbing yourself of your priesthood. What he says here is that they have exercised themselves to discern both good and evil. How do you exercise yourself? If you're a priest, you must be able to discern right from wrong, good from evil. Yet these Hebrews, it seems, and many Christians today cannot do that. Why? Because we have not exercised ourselves in the use of the word of God. We've never used the Bible to say no to our flesh. We've always allowed our flesh to just say no to the Bible. Pastor, I like the technical part of the message better. Could you go back to that? The technical, the precise nature of who Christ is in his high priestly role allows us to understand who we have to be in our subordinate priestly role. That's what Hebrews 5 is teaching us. Christ is our eternal high priest this morning. Ordained and obedient, having offered himself for our sins, we are expected to digest truth, discipline ourselves, and ultimately discern right from wrong as individual priests to God. So, in closing, it seems like a simple chapter. Yes. Far too many, perhaps too many even in this place this morning, are dull as here. Wake up afresh to the fact that your high priest Jesus Christ expects you to fulfill your role as a priest as much as he did in his faithful duties, both for the earthly and eternal high priesthood and all that he accomplished. Father, help us as we close our door. Certainly some of this message today has been hard to be uttered, but I'm thankful that as I was preaching, I could see or sense from the Spirit of God that many in here are earnest to listen and to learn. May we focus on that which is doctrinal, and that is, Christ is our eternal High Priest. As the Son of Glory, he came and did away with the shadow of the earthly High Priest, But he accomplished it perfectly, Lord. That's why it's so wonderful to read of the account of his crucifixion. On the day that he cried in John 19, it is finished. The Bible tells us that the temple veil, between the holy and holy of holies, the temple veil rent from top to bottom. Access to you was opened because of our Because of his vicarious atonement. His atonement for all mankind. God what we've heard this morning. Is that those of us who have received Jesus Christ. Have our own expectations to live out. God help us in this. May we be disciplined. Father, if there's one here this morning who is yet to call upon the Lord as their Savior, I pray that they would. So that he too can become the author of their salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith, as we'll see in Hebrews chapter 12. But here we find he's the author of.